0: How many winners do you think they could realistically could be in crypto? Was it one token? Like, why not just own Bitcoin hmm. versus dabble in anything else?
1: Yeah, uh, I think there will be thousands. Um, and and um, we don't think it's a winner-take-all universe. We think it might be winner-takes-most with some sort of power law. Um, but it's a function of market size. <laughs>
0: Well, let's go ahead and get started. Um, Thanks, everyone, for joining. Um, Again, Clay Gardner, co-CEO of Titan, uh, here with Avicel Guard, managing partner of Electric Capital. Um, This will be a 30-minute call, roughly. Um, We're going to keep it very informal, uh, keep it very back and forth, not too much of the standard interview. But uh, (laughs) before we get started, just a little bit of uh, disclaimers. Uh, None of what we're about to discuss should be construed investment advice. Um, Obviously, past performance of any strategy is not indicative of future results. Um, And if you have any questions on those disclosures, you can find those on our website. But yeah, let's go ahead and get started. So Avichal, again, thanks for joining. Um, For those of you who don't know Avichal, uh, he's an incredibly successful serial entrepreneur. Um, Used to be at companies like Google and Facebook, which actually acquired his previous company. Um, He's an investor in crypto projects, which is why we're excited to chat with him today. Uh, He's invested in companies and projects like Anchorage, Bitwise, Bitnomial, Lightning Labs, Kraken, Near, the list goes on, um, as well as companies like Airtable, Boom, Supersonic, Color Genomics, Cruise, Figma, uh, Nova Credit, Notion, and so forth. So, um, super excited to pick your brain today, Avichal. Um, uh, for those of you who don't know, Avichal was one of our mentors back in White Combinator in 2018. He's been uh, an investor in Titan, uh, an incredibly helpful advisor over the last few years. So, uh, I lean on him heavily for all things company building um, and more recently crypto. Um, maybe a good place to start of each all is uh, I'm always fascinated to hear what people's aha moment was um, when it comes to crypto. You know, people hear the word crypto. Maybe they read a Medium article or something. They read the original mm. Bitcoin white paper. They start to pull those threads and then it feels like they go down this rabbit hole. And at some point it hits them. It sinks in how big of a game changer it can be. Curious what that moment was for you.
1: Uh it's a great question and uh good to see you. Thanks for having me. Um, for sure. excited to chat. Um and thank you for the, for all the kind words. That uh, was very nice of you. Um yeah, well I don't know if there's a single moment for me. Um there's one or two that I remember very vividly. One was um must have been 2016. I saw a talk with Vitalik where he described Ethereum and so I had been in and around Bitcoin for a while and and um And uh, my co-founder Curtis and I, we would sort of been dabbling with it um, uh, for a few years. And I saw this talk where Vitalik talked about this world computer and the ability for not just you to be able to take money and secure it on on the blockchain, but to be able to do stuff with it and program around it. And for whatever reason, the way that he described it, all of a sudden this like light bulb went off in my head and I said, Oh my God, this is actually not just this money. It's actually a a computational platform. It's actually a, a new way write code and just one of the killer apps is the ability to custody money and and that was a pretty big sort of light bulb moment for me to sort of get my head around just what was happening um and the potential of it and then um the second sort of big realization for me was in um 2017 where there is this raw energy in the crypto space where you could go into a chat room and have a conversation and there was there was a lot of sort of speculative you know kind of things happening that were, that were, um, you know, uh, the ICO boom kind of had its, had its pros and cons, obviously. Um, but there were also a lot of, of groups in Telegram or Discord or forums where you would go in and you would have a conversation with somebody who was just a handle. It would just be like at something, right? You didn't know who that person was. You didn't know what their degrees were. You didn't know where in the world they lived, um, but they were extremely intelligent and they could talk to you about cryptography or economics or finance. And you can have these really in-depth conversations with people and just had no idea who these people were. And I, I remember thinking that that just hadn't, I hadn't had that kind of experience since the early internet. And I was too young to really take advantage of internet 1.0. but I remember being young and being able to go into a chat room and sort of the magic of nobody knowing who you were, um, and, and sort of the rawness of that. Um, and to me, it was the first time I'd sort of felt that since the early internet. And so I said, there's this sort of market potential, and then there's this raw energy in this space. And when you get uh, that much raw energy from that many talented people in a place, like usually something really interesting is going to happen. And so every time I've made a good decision in my life about where to spend time or where to invest, it's almost always just been follow where the smartest people are and just hang out with them. And then right. something mag- magical and interesting happens. And that's kind of what crypto felt like for me. So yeah, it wasn't mm-hmm. a moment, but it was sort of this like realization in 2017, um, that all of the smartest people I knew were basically here. And so I should just go hang out with them.
0: That's amazing. Uh, it's a good segue. Tell us about electric capital, like a little bit about what that entails and, and how, yeah. how, how you stumbled upon, you know, managing obviously crypto funds for, for many, uh, very smart, very wealthy people.
1: Yeah. Um, so electric, uh, just as context, we, uh, we're, uh, we, we have a series of venture funds. We invest in early stage, like seed series, a, um, investments. Um we do equity, we do uh you know things that are gonna emit token networks. Um, we, we kind of do full spectrum. Um, and the way electric happened um was in 2017 when when Curtis and I were just spending all of our time in this space, we were getting all these inbounds from traditional VCs, like people who had invested in our companies over the years, or uh people who um with whom we'd worked in, as investors or you know in other capacities. So they were all reaching out and saying, Hey, I remember you guys telling me about this crypto stuff years ago. Um is it real this time? Like, you know, should I buy some Bitcoin? Should I buy some ETH? Uh, what's an ICO? And so we were doing all this, um, all this sort of education in 2017. And, and by the end of 2017, most of the traditional VC firms had kind of figured out they weren't really set up to do crypto. Um, mm-hmm. Other than really Andreessen, who has their crypto fund, um, because Chris Dixon was so early to this stuff and, uh, uh, and, and Katie's phenomenal um but other than and there weren't really the traditional VCs who who understood this stuff and were willing to jump you know both feet in and so a few VCs approached us and said hey can we just give you guys money can you just do the crypto stuff you're doing with your personal investing but do it with our money too so these were the general partners at some of the, the top VC firms and um and Curtis and I discussed and we said well you know we never really set out to be VCs so i kind of describe ourselves as accidental VCs i mean <laughs> our our like our life goal was not to start right. a venture firm um we 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 thought we would actually start another company. And we talked about it We said, you know, this, this might actually be a sort of half company, half VC firm, because a lot of what you have to do to do this well is you have to go pretty deep on the technical stuff, or, you know, actually most of our team is engineers. So we spent a lot of time building software um, to run, the, to run the firm. So like, you know, how do you know what positions you have, or how do you know where your assets are sitting? Or, um, you know, we, we actually run um, nodes to do staking and, and, generate yield on these assets. So there's all this stuff that we have to do that requires us to build software. And so we said, you know, we we're just spending all of our time here. Um, it'd be great to have some sort of capital base and then we can, we can hire more people and actually support the founders that we're investing in and, and try to be helpful to them and actually invest in software. And it feels a little different than a traditional VC firm. Like it's not so much about hiring a, you know, a, an operational team and associates and, and principals. really what you're going to end up doing to do this well at least the way that we wanted to do it was to hire a bunch of engineers and so we said so we said it's kind of it kind of is like a hybrid between a startup and a vc firm um and so that's a good fit for us and you know one of the lessons we learned too our our first startups were in the 2008 bubble and so i always joke that one of the lessons we learned in that era was that if people are just if people are knocking on your door and they want to give you money like you're onto something and, and that's kind of the beginnings of product market fit and so you should probably take the money uh, and so as entrepreneurs, you know, like people were showing up and they were basically saying, Hey, please, here's, here's money. You know, like, take our money and do whatever you're doing with it. Um, and so the Curtis and I, that, that sort of sniffed like product market fit and we should probably take the money. Um, and so that, that was our first fund in 2018. And, and since then we've, we've scaled it up quite a bit. And so now most of our capital base is um, U.S. University endowments and large hospital foundations and and really great um, nonprofits, basically.
0: Mm-hmm. That's super helpful. Um, And fascinating. And I'm sure as you went down that rabbit hole and you've built out electric, you've learned that crypto means so much more than what most people believe it to be, which is Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, And I'm curious what sorts of projects, tokens, um, exposures you find most interesting in crypto, whether it's Mm. DeFi, community networks, fintech payments and so forth.
1: Yeah, all of the above, you know, maybe it's a good place to segue into kind of how we think about the world. I think, you know, in crypto, there are kind of two worldviews and they're complementary; They're not in opposition. Um, one worldview is sort of this top-down economics, finance sort of worldview, which is, um, you know, there's quantitative easing, there's all this money printing happening, there's inflation, uh, or maybe not, depending on who you talk to. Uh, and, and so you have this idea of like sound money and Bitcoin and, and you know, like that, that's kind of sort of one worldview. And I think there are a lot of people that come into crypto through that, through that sort of path. There's another way to think about this mm-hmm. stuff, which is kind of what I was alluding to with, with when I saw Vitalik talk about Ethereum mm-hmm. In 2016 was um, the idea that what this is is really a computational platform. It's just a different way to build software and fundamentally the way that you build software in this space just makes a different set of trade-offs than traditional internet software. Um, and in this space what you have are these distributed systems that are slow and they don't have a lot of throughput and they're kind of hard to use uh, as a user. They're kind of hard to build on top of as a developer. Um, but what you get because they are these distributed systems is you get ownership of your own data, you get privacy, uh, because you have ownership of your own data, no third party can change that data. So you get data immutability, uh, you get seizure resistance in, in so much as this stuff uh, might be considered money of some form. Um, and if you think about that set of trade-offs relative to the internet, it's basically the exact opposite, right? On the internet what you have is speed and scalability and throughput, um, and ease of use and these great, you know, web apps that we've built that are rich. Um, but we realize now that we, what we kind of gave up on the internet was our privacy. We handed over ownership of our data to these third parties, like all of those trade-offs basically just inverted in this space. And so then as a venture investor, when you think about things that do the opposite of the previous generation, that's, that's disruptive. That's where disruption comes from. Because when you make a fundamental set of trade-offs like that, that are the opposite of the previous generation of applications or platforms, the incumbents are at a structural disadvantage. Like the incumbents can't just upend what they do and do the opposite of what they do because their entire business is built on that way of doing business. And so to us, that sort of started to sniff like, oh, that's interesting. That's disruptive. And and the natural place where that takes you is, well, what can you do with a system that is kind of slow, kind of clunky, um, hard to use, but has these other great properties of of being seizure resistant and you own your own data and you get privacy. And that's sort of one observation, sort of a technical set of observations There's a second observation, which is a social observation, which is at the same time that this sort of worldview that we have around computational platforms is happening, 100 to 200 million people around the world have now decided that they're gonna buy Bitcoin and Ethereum and some of these other cryptocurrencies. Um, And if you think about that as as a large scale human behavior, that's a really strange thing to do, right? If you think about what's happening, what's happening is people are taking fiat, they're taking USD, they're taking euros, they're taking yen, and they're handing it to another person effectively. And they're saying, hey, please give me some ones and zeros. Like instead of taking these dollars and buying some food with them or like, you know, going to a movie, you know, or buying a car instead, give me some ones and zeros. Um, and so what's happened in the last couple of years here really is that as a, as a culture, as an internet culture, hundreds of millions of people have decided that these ones and zeros have some value. Um, and that value fluctuates, obviously, considerably in time, but they, there is value there. And so what you've done is you've bootstrapped ones and zeros as having value. So when you take these two concepts together, you realize that actually you have essentially a new form of value transfer, which has been bootstrapped through the social phenomenon uh, of crypto. And you have this technology that is uniquely good at certain kinds of problems. And you put that together and you say, wow, actually, this is the perfect storm to solve any problem related to money movement, because fundamentally, that's what this stuff is good at. Um, I can send you money now across the distributed system, and I own the money on one end, and when it gets to you, you own the money and there's no intermediaries. Um, and it gets there in you know an hour. Um, and you might say, well, an hour is a long time on the internet. Like I'm used to stuff being done in milliseconds. But actually, when you're looking at the incumbent here, the incumbent here is not really the internet. The incumbent here is the legacy financial system. And in the legacy financial system, like if it's three o'clock on a Friday and I wanted to send you a wire, that wire may not get there till Monday or Tuesday, which is kind of crazy if you think about it, right? And so literally, like you're in LA right now, um, if it was Friday afternoon, it would literally be faster for me to go to the bank, get a bunch of cash, get on a plane, fly to LA and hand you the money than it would be for me to wait for the wire wire to clear, right? So the incumbent here is actually this this like 1970s legacy system. Um, And so to us, that's where all this stuff really gets really interesting is we're, in our opinion, just going to reinvent the entire financial system starting with a really, really base layer of a potential store of value, the ability to sort of have money and move that money peer to peer. Um, And, and as, as sort of, you know, I think Ethereum has shown and other people are now playing with once you have money as, as a digital one and zero, like a purely digital bearer instrument, you can program that once you can take custody of it, you can write some code around that. And the ability to write code around that then opens up all these other things. It opens up wills, trusts, escrows, insurance, REITs, HELOCs, mortgages, derivatives, like, Everything, if you think about the entire financial system, is just here's a pile of money, here's some rules around that money, um, and here's what to do with that money. Over the next 10 years, like, make sure the cash moves in this this, in this way, right? Um, and now all of a sudden, instead of that being hundreds of pages of legal documents and, and, and people on phone calls and this like legacy 1970s wire infrastructure, it's 2020s computer science with, with Rust code. Uh, and GitHub and like that—that that to us is just obviously the way all of this stuff just gets reinvented. So over the next twenty years, we think all of anything that has to do with money movement is is going to get consumed by this infrastructure. And then the question, kind of, I think, what you're getting at to bring it back to the question you asked is, well, how does that manifest in terms of what we invest in? And so, what we invest in is a layer one protocols that are sort of solving the fundamental distributed systems and infrastructure problems. We invest in DeFi protocols, things that are reimagining what all of these financial primitives around lending or borrowing or margin or derivatives could be. Uh, we invest in centralized companies uh, because we think that actually for certain types of users, um, they may not want to use the decentralized version of it. They may not want to manage their keys that, you know, that there, there's technical complexity there. And so you'll get some really great centralized uh, entities like Coinbase or Bitnomial or, or Bitwise They make that really easy for people and they're a bridge into this world. And so on the front end will look like FinTechs, on the back end, they're gonna be built on crypto infrastructure. And so we'll we'll invest in those kinds of companies. And then some of the emerging areas that we're starting to see um, that I think are really, really frontier, but exciting are things like um, developer tools and open source technologies because actually the idea here is that when you have tokens, you can have a community of people that all own a share of that network and help govern that network collectively, uh, which is a really good fit for open source developer software. Um, we think this could be a really good fit for certain kinds of marketplaces, um, digital collectibles and digital goods. Like one of the the technology breakthroughs here is the idea of digital scarcity. Like I can own a thing and you can't own the thing, uh, which just wasn't possible previously. Um, and so digital collectibles become really interesting and the marketplaces around those become very interesting. Um, and so there, there there's sort of these adjacencies that we're starting to see in addition to sort of core crypto that we invest into.
0: That's fascinating. I'd love to maybe move to a couple of questions our, our clients sent in in advance of this call, sure. um, uh, and some of these some of these are quite fun and, and very practical. So the first one being, if you were the CEO of a Fortune 500 or that's called an S and P 500 company, mm-hmm. would you potentially look to convert a portion of your balance sheet into Bitcoin? Why or why not?
1: Uh, yes. Short answer. Um, I think it, it's it's still a very uh, it's still very early in the evolution of this. I think. Um, There are a couple of advantages to doing that. So one, I think you take a very rational approach, which is maybe it in fact does turn out to be some sort of inflation hedge. It's TBD, whether or not that will happen. Um, But just from a portfolio perspective, there's a lot of analysis that that people have done that basically says if you add a small percentage of exposure to something like Bitcoin, um, the portfolio, your portfolio performance goes up. And so uh, you know, that there, there's a lot of data to back this up. And and so if that is true, then there's no reason to think it wouldn't be true for corporate treasury management and some sort of crypto exposure, I think rationally makes sense. I think there's also um, just the reality of um, of being exposed to these things and understanding them, which I think is important. Like if this is the way the world is going, the best way to understand it is to have some exposure to it, um, right? So imagine you're in, you're in like 1994, and you can see the internet coming, um, does it make sense? Even if you're not going to convert your entire business to, you know, the website and .com and buy a domain name and switch all of your servers so that now everybody has, you know, um, is, is working on email or something, right? Does it make sense for you to take part of your organization and start building some muscle around that specifically your finance organization? If you think that this might be the future finance, that certainly makes sense. And then I think there's frankly, just a PR win. Like if you're just seen as a forward thinking company and you're in the press, like, I think that's, that's part of the game, right? Like the, the the way that the modern press cycle works is you don't go issue a press release and go talk to the Wall Street Journal and then get a, get a write-up. The modern way to do PR and communications is to do it direct with your customers and to be in, in the social media channels. And I think if you're smart about it, you could actually take your move into this space as as, uh, as a branding opportunity and as a PR opportunity, which sort of feels like free upside. Like, why wouldn't you do that? Mm-hmm.
0: Got it. Uh, Next question would be, I mean, you've worked at some of the big tech companies of each all. You've worked at Google. Your company was acquired, at Facebook. You led product there. Do you think they ultimately win in the crypto space? If you think about how people have approached traditional payments, um, consumer products, um, the default is that the incumbents will win and you see a lot of antitrust and regulatory scrutiny as a result. Do you think that same logic, the resources uh, will drive, uh, you know, those with the resources will drive the value creation? Do you believe that applies to, to crypto with big tech as well?
1: No, uh, short answer. Um, And and the reason is that I think um, the technology stack is sufficiently different and the way that you go to market is sufficiently different. Like what you're trying to do in these systems, for example, is, you know, when you have a distributed system uh, with with tokens to sort of align incentives, you can't have more than one party own, let's say more than 10% of the network, uh, because that ends up being a vulnerability to yeah that's that's a way that the the network itself becomes less resilient the more concentration of ownership you have the less resilient the network is uh to attack and so by design these networks are set up to try to distribute ownership very broadly and and successful ones have very very um, distributed ownership which is kind of antithetical to what these companies do right like when you think about what most companies need to do is they need to control the network they need to control the marketplace they need to have control um, and so when you, think of through, when you think of it, that's just one example, but when you think of it through this, this lens, I think what you realize is that when you have a company um, and there's a new infrastructure that emerges and a new way to build software, it's not so easy for that company to just start building with that new way of software because often the consequences are downstream of that. Like you have to change your human organization around the technology for the business to be successful. So I'll give you a concrete example, right? To, to put it into sort of like historical context. Um, the about Amazon versus Walmart, like Amazon was started in 1994, I think. Um, and, uh, Walmart has had basically 30 years to figure out how to get a website and an e-commerce business running. And it's like, a, it's an interesting part of their business today, but like, it took them 20 years to figure that out. And like, how is that possible? How could they not figure it out for 20 or 25 years? Um, and it's because actually it's not so simple as just like putting up the website Um, actually we have to do downstream of that is you have to change the way that you market. You have to change the way you acquire customers. You have to change who inside your organization has power. And inside Walmart, the engineers didn't have the power. Um, the people who had power were, you know, the brand managers and the people who have the Procter and gamble relationship. Um, and so in a historical context, you can see like in, in the early nineties, people thought that the big winners on the internet would be the media companies and the TV companies, uh, you know, CNN and and New York times. and, And of course, Walmart, and in retrospect, we realized that just that that was silly, right? Of course, it was going to be Facebook and Google and Twitter and, and Amazon at one, like the digitally native companies. And I, I think a similar thing will happen here is like, it's not just that the infrastructure has changed. It's that in addition to the infrastructure changing, well, if you natively build on that infrastructure, you very likely have to change your human organization around all of that. And changing your power structures inside a company is very, very hard at scale. And so it's unlikely that most of these companies will, will be able to make that transition. Some certainly will. Uh, but I suspect most will not, um, which is why, I mean, on the, on the early stage venture side, one of the behaviors that we see is all these great founders are coming in because they realize that, because they realize that Google and Amazon and, and Facebook um, and so many of these big incumbents are just not here. Um, and so if you're thinking about starting a new company, being able to do it in a space where you're not competing against those incumbents, and it's just mostly greenfield. Um, that's a fantastic place to start a company. That that is very reminiscent of what the internet was in in the 90s and and early 2000s, where it's just all Greenfield and and the incumbents weren't here yet.
0: Got it. I'd love to uh, chat through a few, what I call quick takes. So this is a new section we're going to try out. Um, The first one is, what's the single most important thing about crypto you think most people are missing? And the reason I ask that is if you think about particularly some of the smartest people of the last century. Let's take Charlie Munger, for example. You know, he famously called Bitcoin rat poison. I think it was several years ago. I don't think his views have changed much. What do you think smart people are missing on crypto?
1: Oh, I think there's a lot. It depends on, and, and, and to be fair to to, um, uh, to many smart people, like I think um, it's still very early days. And so it's entirely possible this whole experiment falls apart over the next decade for all sorts of reasons. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll maybe make two observations about things I've learned Um that I think um, run counter to what I think a lot of people who, uh, a lot of smart people and kind of the way that they think about it. So one is, I think if you look at um, some of the criticism that comes in, people will say things like, Oh, it's, it's only used for nefarious activities. Like it, you know, there's no good use case for this stuff. It's only used for, you know, bad stuff. And I actually think that's a really um, bad way to look at technology because almost always technology is adopted by the fringes first and it turns out folks like drug dealers are underserved because you know they they have really they have meaningful problems and so actually they end up being early adopters of a lot of technology so actually like i i tend to think if you uh see people who are on the fringe that might be kicked out of the existing system um you know drug dealers or uh, sex workers, or uh, let's say cannabis. Um, Some people have like moral hangups about these things. Um, And to me, I think if you set aside aside the morality of it for a second, you just say, well, this is, these are people that are smart and underserved and willing to adopt technology um, and look at the history of technology. What do you see? Well, what you see is that they were all early adopters of email. They were all early adopters of the internet. They were all early adopters of pagers. They were all early adopters of cell phones. Um, like I would actually look at the fact that there's that some small percentage of that activity happening as almost a positive signal. Um, that's also interesting because it's actually, I think the thing that people like to glum onto if they haven't actually done the research to say, well, actually what percentage of the activity that's happening here is nefarious, which actually turns out is very, very small. Like any, any of the third, third, uh, party data that you look at sort of is is very clear that the amount of uh, nefarious activity happening here is, is quite small. Um, as you know, we just, we just had this, um, the, the, the Bitcoin ransomware attack on that pipeline and the FBI recovered the Bitcoin. And it's because actually it turns out Bitcoin is a terrible way to try to move money around because the blockchain is transparent. Um, and so actually you're better off using, you know legacy financial systems and shell corporations and moving money internationally where it's all opaque. Um, and so actually, you know, I think this criticism that, that a lot of smart people have, it's like this, this stuff is bad. A, the data doesn't back up that most of the use cases are bad. Actually it's a very small percentage of the use cases. And B, actually, it's it's sort of to me a silly criticism on its surface because a lot of times when when people who are on the fringes of society are doing something, you actually should pay more attention rather than dismissing it. Um, so it almost on on like principle seems like the wrong way to look at technology.
0: Mm-hmm. Got it. How many winners do you think they could realistically could be in crypto? Was it one token? Like why not just own Bitcoin mm-hmm. versus dabble in anything else?
1: Yeah, uh, I think there will be thousands. Um, and and um, we don't think it's a winner-take-all universe. We think it might be winner-takes-most with some sort of power law, um, but it's a function of market size, right? So if you look at, let's say, social networking, um, in the early days of social networking, you had this, this explosion of, of people that were trying to win at social because people would see it was a big market. You had MySpace, MySpace Friendster, Bebo, High Five, Tagged, Facebook. There was, just, there was all of these, right? Um, and then you did see this coalescence uh, in sort of like the late 2000s around a couple of them, right? Facebook was a big winner. LinkedIn was a big winner. Twitter was a big winner. Um, and so I think we're kind of right now in the in the 2005-ish era of crypto where there's there's just this Cambrian explosion of all these ideas. Many of them are too early. Many of them will not achieve escape velocity and have real usage. And so over the next five years, I would expect there to be a coalescence around a, a relatively small number um, that will be big winners. but what happens after that is that the market size keeps expanding. And so actually, if you look at social post 2012, you saw a refragmentation, right? Now you have Snap, you have TikTok, you have all these other niche social networks that have emerged. And it's because the market size got large enough that you could actually support many, many more winners. And so actually, if you played out more than five years, if you go 10 years plus, I would not be surprised to see the same thing happen in crypto is that, you know, when you have 3 billion people that are using this stuff, as it's so crazy to imagine that you have thousands of tokens and you have... Uh, you know, some sort of power law with a very long tail. Um, that, that to me would be very consistent with what's happened with other network effect technologies um, in the history of technology over the last 50 years. That's generally how it's played out. And so I would expect crypto to be very similar.
0: Makes sense. Uh, maybe last quick take here on on portfolio allocation. If you think about the average individual of each all, what percentage of their portfolio should be in crypto in your mind? And I, I realize the answer is with a strong asterisk, it highly <laughs> depends on a handful of different things, but at uh, least how should an individual think about percentage weighting in crypto?
1: Yeah, um, it's, it, yeah it's, it's a very good question. We get this asked uh, of us all the time, um, obviously not financial advice. Um, and so, you know, do your own research. I tend to think that the way to think about it is a function of your risk tolerance, which is how much are you willing to lose and what is losing that money mean to you? And, and for some people, that's 50 basis points, you know, half a percent of your portfolio for some people that might be one or 2%. Um, it's also a function of age and how much, you know, which is sort of risk tolerance. Um, I tend to think though, that maybe the question to ask is fundamental question to ask is, do you think it's real? Like do you think that there's something real and fundamental happening here? And if so, what percentage of your net worth does it take Uh, for you to start paying attention to it, right? So if you do think that this might be real and this is 1990 or 1995, um, you probably should have paid attention to the internet because it's going to change a lot of stuff around you. And and actually understanding that would have let you understand a lot of what was going to happen in business and software and technology and politics and society. Um, And so whatever percentage it takes to get you to pay attention so that you actually start paying attention, um, I think is a good lens to look at it through. Um, And that, that number is different for different people.
0: Got it. So l- last segment here, I know we're, we're running up on 30 minutes. Um, let's call this long or short. And again, with the asterisk, and this is not investment advice, but just for the sake of uh, a philosophical debate, I always yeah. love to learn which way people are leaning bullish or bearish. So, why don't I walk through a couple of topics related to crypto and you just give me the, the one word answer, long or short. Okay, sound good? sounds good, sounds good. Okay, uh, first one, Bitcoin, long or short?
1: Long. Uh,
0: non-fungible tokens or NFTs? Long virtual real estate long
1: i have a feeling my answers might be all long <laughs> if you ask crypto assets
0: doge oh that's an interesting
1: one um short
0: uh decentralized finance or DeFi. long uh, last one here coinbase i have a feeling i know the answer
1: <laughs> long
0: Okay. all. this has been um, a real pleasure. Um, I'm sure everyone enjoyed this. Um, I I know there's a lot of questions that poured in, so we may have a couple I can ping you on offline, but I really appreciate the time. Uh, Thanks for having us.
1: Good to see you. Thank you for having me. Good to see you.
0: Cheers.